Well, I know it's been a little while, but let's turn to the book of Genesis in chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. And let's look again at the passage that we looked at the last time we were here. Uh, Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. Let's see what our Lord has to say to us. This is the Word of God. Genesis 45 beginning in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm crying, I'm so choked up. Verse 10. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household, and all that you have, do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, And of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Albert Fish appeared to be a very kind man. He was a grandfather. He was not at all intimidating. He was known for his generosity. He seemed to care very much about people. 
His wife loved him dearly and believed him to be a great husband. His children looked up to him and respected him as their father. But Mr. Fish had a great secret. Over a period of many years, he befriended a number of young children. And using false names and false identities, he earned the trust of their families, ultimately luring these children into his trap. He abused these children in ways that I will not mention, and he murdered them. But he did not stop there. He did unspeakable things to their bodies. He cooked them. He ate them. He created his own favorite recipes using the bodies of children. And if his own words are to believe, he had more than a hundred victims during his life. This past Christmas Eve, a church in northern Nigeria gathered together for a Christmas Eve service. During their Christmas Eve service, a gunman came into the church and killed six people, including the pastor. That following Saturday, December 29th, 2012, Nigerian gunmen entered the homes of Christians who had recently moved into that neighborhood and slaughtered 15 of them. The next day, December 30th, 2012, gunmen entered a northern Nigeria church and killed another 15 Christians. These gunmen were a part of a group called Boko Haram. It's an extremist Islamic group. I start with those stories because I want to be very clear at the beginning of this message that we do live in a world in which real evil exists. The Bible does not minimize evil. The Bible does not act as if evil isn't real. The Bible does not treat suffering and pain as if they do not hurt. Evil exists. This is a world in which six million Jews were systematically killed through gas chambers and other means because they were born Jewish. This is a world in which people will strap themselves up with explosives and intentionally seek to kill as many as possible. This is a world in which a young man will walk into an elementary school and take the lives of 20 first graders. And so my question for us is this. How do we make sense of that? If our God is real and our God is good, and our God is all-powerful. How can He let these things happen? Surely if God is good, He is against evil. Surely if God is all-powerful, He has the ability to prevent evil from happening. So if this all-good, all-powerful God exists, why is there evil in this world? Could it be that the sovereignty of our God is limited? Could it be that there are just some things that are outside of God's control? Could it be that evil exists in your life and in my life because God is incapable of preventing it? The glorious truth that we are studying in this passage is a truth that gives us answers to those questions. 
Our God is all-powerful. And our God is all-good. Our God has infinite sovereignty. There is nothing outside of His control. And evil exists because God has ordained it to exist all for the purpose of good. The key verses of this chapter, the key verses of this whole portion of the book of Genesis are verses 5, 7, and 8. So look at verse 5 again. Verse 5, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So the brothers sold Joseph into slavery. This was an evil deed. Yet Joseph said that through this evil deed, God was sending him to Egypt with a good purpose. Lives are going to be preserved. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. In other words, the sin of these brothers was used by God to show mercy to these brothers. This is the family of Jacob, the chosen family, God's remnant on earth. And God has been working through their sin to do them good. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Yes, the brothers were the immediate cause of Joseph being put in shackles, and sent to Egypt as a slave. The brothers were the immediate cause, but they were not the primary cause. They were not the first cause. God's will was the primary cause. This is the doctrine of providence. God works all things according to the counsel of His own will. Now last time we looked at this passage we began opening up this doctrine of providence, we saw that God's providence extends even to the words, thoughts, attitudes, actions of other people. Even the things that you and I do freely of our own wills, we still do ultimately as a part of God's preordained plan. And we accomplish His purpose. This morning we're going to notice a second truth taught in this passage about the providence of God. And it's this. God's providence works good from evil. God's providence works good from evil. I want to unpack that with three questions. Number one, is God truly sovereign over evil? Number two, if He is, does that make Him the author of evil? Number three, why would our good God ordain for evil to exist? So number one, is God truly sovereign even over evil? And our passage clearly teaches that that is the case. The evil actions of these brothers were not outside of God's control, but were a part of God's plan. We're going to see it again. The most famous verse from this portion of Genesis is Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it 
for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. Now, if these were the only verses in the Bible that spoke this way, we might think that maybe Joseph's story was a special case, that only in this circumstance did God ordain evil to happen for good. But Joseph's case was not a special case. Over and over again, the Bible shows God's control over all the evil things that happen in this world. Pharaoh, hardening his heart against God, was an evil thing to do. Pharaoh refused to submit to God. Pharaoh refused to do what God commanded him to do. This was wicked rebellion. This was wicked pride. And the book of Exodus tells us, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And yet listen to what God told Moses, Exodus 4.21, and this was ahead of time. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, later we read, Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh made himself stubborn. Pharaoh set himself against God's will. Pharaoh was the immediate cause of his sin. He sinned in doing that. But what Pharaoh did was exactly what God had ordained to take place so that God could get glory over Pharaoh. We see something very similar, Joshua 11. We have these pagan kings from Canaan, and they're coming to attack God's people Israel. Verse 20, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy, but be destroyed as the Lord had commanded Moses. It was the Lord's doing to harden their heart. In the book of of Job, we are told that Satan himself was at work to destroy Job. Job destroyed Job's... Satan destroyed Job's livestock. Satan destroyed Job's workers. Satan brought about a storm that caused the house to fall on Job's children and kill them all. Yet when Job, in his misery, reflected on the evil things that had occurred to him, he said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we say, Job, you've misunderstood. It wasn't God, it was Satan that did it. Satan did these evil things to you. And yet the very next verse says, In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job was not misguided. Job was not being sinful. He was acknowledging the truth. Even the worst evil that Satan can bring into our lives will only be brought into our lives with God's permission. That's good news, by the way, isn't it? Amos 3, verse 6 Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? 
Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So if disaster comes to a city, Amos says, it was ultimately the Lord's will. Isaiah 45, 7, God speaking. God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The greatest example of God's providence extending even to evil is the cross itself. Because the murder of Jesus was the greatest evil that has ever been committed. This was not just the killing of an innocent man. It was the torture and murder of the very Son of God, the King of glory, the creator and sustainer of all things. Who committed the vilest act in human history? Are we to blame Pilate? Yes, Pilate contributed to this. Are we to blame the Roman soldiers? Absolutely. They, they hammered the nails. There was the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Judas played his part. All of these acted in wicked, sinful ways to put Jesus on the cross. And yet, not long later, Peter is preaching to the crowds at Pentecost. And he says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Him you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In other words, Peter says, You did it. You're responsible. You killed Jesus. By the way, you did exactly what God had ordained for you to do. Listen to Acts 4, 27, 28. These are Christians. They're praying for boldness. They're crying out to God. They say to God, Truly in this city, we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, it is very clear that even the most evil act that ever occurred in human history was a part of God's sovereign plan. God is sovereign over evil. God is sovereign even over the evil that comes into your life. There is no calamity. There is no evil word spoken to you. There is no evil deed done to you that is outside of God's control. Every wicked thing that happens to you is a part of God's plan for your good. Even your own sins, though God hates your sins with a tremendous, furious hatred, yet nevertheless, even your sins are still a part of His plan to cause you to love the mercy and the grace that He has given to you in Christ Jesus. God's providence extends even to evil. That's question one. Question two, does this mean God is the author of evil? Does this mean that God is the author of evil? Well, if by author you mean that God actually commits sin, the answer is absolutely not. The Bible is very clear that God cannot nor will not commit any evil. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect, 
All His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is He. Job 34.10 Hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that He should do wickedness, from the Almighty that He should do any wrong. Psalm 5.4 You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. James 1.13 Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. 1 John 1.5 This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. In other words, to say that God commits sin is to be guilty of blasphemy. God is pure. God is blameless, and all sin is disgusting to God's eternal soul. Now added to this, we know that God rightly holds responsible those who do commit sin, even though that sin was a part of His plan. So for example, God ordained for Pharaoh to harden his heart, but Pharaoh still hardened his heart, And God still judged Pharaoh for hardening his heart, and he was just to do so. Or consider Judas. Listen to this verse of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew 26. Listen to this verse. Talking about Judas, Jesus says, The Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In other words, Jesus says, I am going to be betrayed just as it was written of me. Just as God promised, just as it was prophesied, just as it was ordained, just as it was planned, I'm going to be betrayed that way. Nevertheless, woe to that man who actually does it. So what Judas did was preordained by God, was a part of God's good plan, and nevertheless, God justly held Judas responsible for his sin. For Samuel 24, we're told that God incited David to take a sinful census. He uses that language, God incited David. That is, God worked things in the circumstances surrounding David's life so that David's sinful heart would jump at the chance to take a census of God's people that he ought not to have taken. God incited David to do it, and yet later... David grieves and confesses his sin, and God punishes David. God was at work to cause the sin to happen, because God had good purposes to bring about through the sin, yet He holds David rightly responsible. David was the one who sinned. Is this all very clear? Do you completely understand this? Because if you do, you come up here. I do not. I do not completely understand this. I only can tell you what the Bible says. And I would say these are some of those things that we pray God will reveal more to us about in heaven. There is mystery here. Think about our study of Joseph. God knew He wanted to get Joseph to Egypt. He also knew that Judah's heart, in particular, was prone towards the sin of greed. Judah was always looking for an opportunity to make a buck. 
So just at the time that the brothers were attacking Joseph, what does God do? He brings a slave caravan by in the distance. The timing is perfect. Judah's eye sees the caravan. Immediately his wicked heart thinks, "Mm, opportunity to make a buck. See, God arranged the circumstances, but it was Judah's wicked heart that moved himself to actually do the sin. Ultimately, through Judah's sin, Judah's very life would be saved. Doesn't mean God liked the sin. Doesn't mean Judah didn't suffer much because of the sin. But through the sin, God brought about good. The Bible was very clear that God ordains evil but does not commit evil. Evil no more springs forth from God than darkness springs forth from light. Would any of us say darkness comes from the sun? No. Darkness is the absence of the sun's influence. Darkness is the absence of light. This is how I think we should think about sin in this world. God is pure goodness and light, and God overflows with grace and love. But at times, God withholds Himself from the hearts of people. This is what it means for God to harden someone's heart. God is constantly overflowing in grace on everybody, not just Christians. Common grace is everywhere. Were it not for God's common grace, God's loving influence on all people, we'd all be worse than Hitler. That's the kind of depravity that's in us. So it is God's common grace that keeps us from being as bad as we could be. But at times, God chooses to lessen His influence. God chooses to pull the shades a little lower, to a little, a little less light in. Sin is not so much a thing as the absence of a thing. Sin is the absence of God's influence on our lives. Evil does not come from God. Evil comes from the absence of God's influence on us. When God lessens His gracious influence on our lives, we immediately fall into ungodliness. So is God the author of evil? No. He is the author of good. But for goodness' sake, He wills that evil be. We've explained it. It's all clear, right? Got it all figured out. I wish. But that's the best we can do. So the last question would be this. Why? Why would a good God ordain that bad things happen? Why would God, a good God, ordain that that evil be? Well, there's no doubt that this is one of those places where men like John Piper and Jonathan Edwards in particular have been so helpful to me. Um, Here's how I'm going to answer this. I'm just going to read Jonathan Edwards' answer and then give you a brief explanation, and then we're going to close. So I want you to listen carefully to what John... This is Jonathan Edwards' answer to why would a good God ordain that evil exist? Here's what he says. It is a proper and excellent thing for infinite glory to shine forth. And for the same reason, it is proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete. Okay? So it is a good thing for God in His glory, who has all of these glorious attributes, to display them. right? To put His attributes on display. And it is proper that God not display half of who He is. It is proper for God to display all of who He is. That is, 
that all the parts of His glory should shine forth, that every beauty should be proportionally effulgent, brilliant, shining forth, that the beholder may have a proper notion of God. So not only should God display all His glory, but He should display it in its proper proportion. If God is love, but He's also justice, He shouldn't just display all love with a little bit of justice. He should display everything as it proportionally is. It is not proper at all that one glory should be exceedingly manifested and another not manifested at all. Thus it is necessary that God's awesome majesty, he uses the word awful, I wanted to make sure you got the point, awesome majesty, His authority, His dreadful greatness, His justice, His holiness should be manifested. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed. In other words, if you don't have sin in the world, if you don't have evil, there are parts of God that you and I would never know. There are glories of God that would remain unseen and unloved and unadored. This could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed so that the shining forth of God's glory would be very imperfect, both because these parts of divine glory would not shine forth as the others do, but also the glory of His goodness, love, and holiness would be faint without them. Nay, they could scarcely shine forth at all. If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin, then there could be no manifestation of God's holiness in the hatred of sin, or in showing any preference in His providence of godliness before it. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or God's true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned and no misery to be saved from. How much happiness whatsoever he bestowed, his goodness would not be so much prized or so much admired. So evil is necessary in order to the highest happiness of the creature and the completeness of that communication of God for which he made the world. Because the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God and the sense of his love, And if the knowledge of Him be imperfect, the happiness of the creature must be proportionably imperfect. In other words, God ordains evil to exist so that His people will be even more happy in eternity. Ultimate true happiness comes in knowing God. And there are glories of God that will bring you much joy in eternity. I hope they're bringing you joy now. But there are glories of God that will bring you joy in eternity that you would never know was not sin a part of this world. God brings evil and suffering and distress and calamity into this world and into your life and into my life so that there will come a day when as God's people in heaven, we will be able to see and to know God as He really is and have infinitely more joy, infinite upon infinite, than we would have had otherwise. Does that make sense? It is for your good that God brings evil, which is why James can say things like, rejoice when trials come your way. Can you do that? Can you rejoice? All right, 
close this way. God's purpose in this universe is ultimately to have for Himself a people who bear His image, who share in His eternal joy as they behold His glory. God's purpose is to thrill these people with His glorious character, including His awesome love. But apart from evil in the world, there is so much of God's glory they would never see. God hates evil with an infinite hatred, but He has ordained that evil be for the greater good. Without evil in this world, with evil in this world, He is able to display all of His attributes in wonderful and perfect proportion. His people can grasp something of the height and the width and the breadth and the depth of just how awesome God's love for them really is. Evil exists for the same reason Satan exists, so that God can get glory over them, so that good can be truly known and celebrated forever and ever. Do we see this anywhere else in the Bible? Well, I think we're going to see it in Romans 8.28, don't you? For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, even evil ordained and worked for our good. That is really the primary message of Genesis 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, and 50. That entire last section of the book of Genesis is meant to teach us that awesome truth. God has not brought difficulty into your life for no reason at all. God has brought difficulty in your life because He loves you. He has your welfare in mind. He has your eternal happiness in mind. He is doing you good. And at the very center of His plan to do you good was the cross of Christ. The cross is the hinge on which God's plan swings. It's at the cross that we see God's great hatred of evil, We hear Christ crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The greatest suffering ever endured was ordained by God for the greatest good. For your eternal happiness, my eternal happiness, and the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. Dear friend, you cannot come to God without coming to a cross. It is through the cross that the glory of God is most put on display to you. Do you see it? Do you see how through evil, through suffering, you've come to know and love a good God? Aren't you thankful for that suffering that was endured so that through it you could see the love of God for you? If there are any here that do not see it, if your eyes have not been opened to see God's love for you put on display in Christ as He died for sinners, I pray that God would give you sight. I pray that you would see the awesome love that will give your soul strength and courage as you live out your last years in this world of suffering and heartache. Do not reject this God. You won't be able to ignore Him forever. To reject this God is to commit spiritual suicide. Don't reject Him. Love Him. Love Him and trust Him as He loves you. All right. Will you Surrender yourself to this God who is over all, this God who has preordained all things, this God who is working all for the good of his people. 
is God who has given his son to show you his love. Will you surrender to him? Will you be his? Will you follow him? I pray that you will. Let's pray.